Jonathan Biggins loads all forms of social media. When I invited him onto stages, he told me he'd never listened to a podcast. So I was thrilled to introduce him to the form. But as one of Australia's preeminent writers, actors, directors and speakers, he comes with quite an intimidating pedigree. Understandably, I was slightly nervous about his visit. Mr Biggins is charming and armed with the wit we know and crave. He's perhaps best known as one of the creators and performers of the Sydney Theatre Company's Wharf Review, a popular date on the Sydney calendar for the past couple of decades. Jonathan was born in Newcastle, his parents meeting at university doing amateur drama. No wonder then that he has embraced a broad career in the arts, achieving excellence in whatever role, form or medium he has turned his hand to. He is responsible for some of the biggest laughs I have ever had in the theatre. So it was with great joy and considerable curiosity that I sat down with Jonathan Biggins. Now, Jonathan, you've crafted a career as a performer, a writer and a director where words are a lifeblood. Were books important to you as a child? Books? Yeah. Uh, well, yes, because um, my, my father was a professor of English and my mother worked for the ABC. So books were a very important part um, of our childhood. In fact, the house is full of books. It's uh, almost collapsing under the weight of the books that are there, uh, even to this day. So, yeah, yeah, books were important. What's, what's a significant book from your childhood that you recall? Well, we were talking about this the other day, and I still would have to say the Swallows and Amazon series by Arthur Ransom. Um, which was set in the Lake District of England, people, you know, children messing about on small boats. And he was one of the first authors to that notion that children take responsibility for their own lives and they go away from the adults and they create this sort of fantasy world of pirates and exploration and, you know, going out to sea, but they're on a lake in small dinghies. Uh, and, And that very much appealed to me. And Arthur Ransom, I mean, he was an interesting fellow. He was actually Trotsky's press secretary uh-huh. for a while and a war correspondent in Russia during the First World War. Very interesting bloke, um, but he had an obsession with small boats and camping and outdoor life and, and all that sort of stuff, and he wrote this series of children's books that just I read over and over and over again. Um, speaking of Russia, on the plane recently I saw The Death of Stalin. Have you seen that film? Hilarious. It's one of the funniest movies I've I think it's, seen. Yeah, it is one of the best films I've seen for a long time. Yeah. Very, very funny. Very theatrical, and I think that's I think, and full of those, uh, those wonderful actors who are all yes. heightened performers. And, yes, you know, very heightened performers, very heightened script, but, you know, interesting and, and a meaty subject and... <laughs> I mean, and I, I dare say it's actually not far from the truth of what happened when, yeah. and, and that sort of you know the notion when tyrannies and despots become the the black farce that ensues, uh, and just you know people being shot left, right, and centre, and you just think, yeah, that's what it must have been like just re- during the terror, just ridiculous. And, and comically, it was very black, of course, very black, yes, which but, appeals to our sense of humour, I guess. Yes, um, it does. But, but what else makes you laugh? Um, well, again, I guess, I mean, my parents are both English. I was born here in, in Newcastle, in New South Wales. Uh, but very much that sort of English sensibility. I remember we used to watch as a kid, we'd watch Morecambe and Wise. I think Eric Morecambe is one of the funniest Absolutely. people ever and yeah. a very skilled um, comedian. He makes it look effortless, but obviously yes. it was planned down to the... Yes, yes. But he's naturally mind. funny. I mean, some people are just naturally funny. I think that... That is something that is uh, inescapable. You can, you know, learn comedy, you can learn techniques and things like that, but you are, are either funny or you're not really. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humour. Yeah. I mean, everyone has a sense of humour of some sort, but um, I think comic actors, and, and the good thing, you know, the nice thing about Eric Morecambe, he was a comic actor. Uh, at the moment, we're a little under the tyranny of the stand-up comedian, which, you know, they're great and they're fun and everything, but after a while it becomes a little repetitive. It's like everybody's Facebook page actually looks exactly the same. Um, and I think after a while, you know, formats like that tend to become repetitive, but it was nice that, um, you know, if you can explore a few more things, being a comic actor rather than just a comedian. Uh, the Goon Show? was I love The Goon Show. Yeah. Well, not at the time so much. 
At my school, you were split into Goons fans or Monty Python fans. Needless to say, I went to an all-boys school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I came to the Goons much later uh, when we were doing a show called um, Ying Tong, which was an English play written by a guy called Roy Smiles about Milligan having a nervous breakdown uh, because he was a manic depressive and and suffered from it all his life. And, And the pressure of writing the Goon show broke him many times and he would go into hospital for prolonged periods and this is uh, one of those periods and I played Peter Sellers uh, and the second half of the show was sort of like an extended goon show sketch set inside Milligan's brain. Yeah, I remember it. It was wonderful. And you, oh, you were wonderful as yeah, well. Yeah, it was you know, great fun to do and, it. And Sellers being a great mimic and impersonator. Which, Absolutely. Which of course you are as well. So. Well, I'm not as good as he is but, well, yeah, but it's like, I mean, I think Steve Coogan yeah. is the modern Peter Sellers yeah. and the both both of those people elevate beyond mimicry or just impressions. They take it somewhere else. And when you watch... I mean, I'm a big fan of the Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon road films. Yep. And Rob Brydon's very entertaining and very genial, but when Steve Coogan does it, there's something else that takes the impression <clears throat> slightly further and it really does become um, a character that is inhabited solely by him. Uh, and that's what Peter Sellers was. And Peter Sellers said of, of himself, he said, I am no one but the characters. I'm, I'm like Blue Bottle, you know, it's just brown paper and string. And, you know, there's been many psychological evaluations of Peter Sellers because he was nuts mm. and very unpleasant. Mm. Not a very nice guy. Treated his family appallingly um, and everyone he worked with, pretty much. Apart from... Milligan and Harry Seacombe, really. I mean, The Goons was actually the happiest working time of his life Um, but he he was just a cipher really he said I'm a vessel to be filled by other people Uh, and he was transformational and And, and interestingly too Sellers and Coogan are both fabulous dramatic actors yeah yeah Yeah, that's the thing with Coogan and Philomena um, yes yes Uh, and and it's a great skill when you can you know, be funny and do impressions and things, but then when he's being someone like Alan Partridge, it, it's complete. Um, and it's not just an impressionist doing, you know. So what do you, what do you think, uh, how does that work? A lot of those great comics are terrific dramatic actors. Is it finding there's an authenticity in the comedy which they uh, can transfer easily Yes, to... I mean, best, the best comedy works when it's sort of grounded in some sort of reality. I mean, that was the interesting thing about the Goon Show. You can be as fantastical as you like, but as long as the, there is a, a belief in the situation. So when Blue Bottle and Eccles are in any situation, they very firmly believe that what is happening to them is real. Uh, and that's an essential component of farce as well, isn't it? It's the essential component yes. of farce. Yes. If the people in the piece don't believe that everything is happening... It just goes... I mean, Fast is a very delicate thing to get, I reckon. Well, you directed that fantastic production of Noises Off at yeah. Sydney Theatre Company. Yeah. So... Yeah, um, and we made sure that what was happening was grounded very much in reality. And it's difficult over a long run to sustain that because, you know, obviously the actors... Seduced by the laughter. Well, they, yes, smell the blood in the water and go, <laughs> hello, this could be better if I made it bigger. Yeah. No, not really. Yeah. Pull it back. Uh, so that, uh, yeah, and I think Steve Coogan really, really does do that. He's, to my mind, I mean, and also the bravery in, in, in those road films of, of saying, this is me, and then painting a very unflattering picture of yourself, and they get progressively blacker and blacker. And, and the last one was just totally depressing. Uh, and quite prescient, actually, of the Me Too movement, mm. when, you know, these middle-aged white blokes wandering around just seeming more and more inadequate. <laughs> yeah. can, can comedy become just too wrong? Is, it, is there is such a thing as going too far? Well, there is. I mean, it, it all depends on your audience. I, I think you have to be very careful. I think with comedy, any no subject is taboo. It's just who you say it to. And I think the danger these days is that people put everything out on, on social media, and that's the public domain. That is, it's not talking to your friends in the pub. It's not talking around a dinner table with your family. You know, you can do the funny voices and do all that sort of stuff and, and with your family and it's fairly safe. But as soon as you put it on any sort of 
format or Facebook, whatever. It's in the public domain. Um, I think there is a new Puritanism. Yeah, I was going to say, sweeping. I think we've lost the ability to laugh at ourselves. Yes, yeah. I think uh, it, I, I liken it to the the terror after the French Revolution. when And it happens with every revolution. I mean, you look at the Chinese Revolution, when Mao came in with the Cultural Revolution after that. You have a, a movement that is broadly uh, everyone ideologically agrees with and is seen as a great step forward, and we all get to that point. But then the purists, who think we have not come far enough, then hijack the whole thing, and you enter the world of Robespierre, where you know if you are not committed to the revolution, one hundred and ten percent in his eyes, yep. off to the guillotine. And I think that's happening now, but you know you've just got to wear it, haven't you? Yes. Well, world leaders are a bit of a worry at the moment, aren't they? So. Oh, sure. But um, yes, and I don't think they're setting a very good example. But the thing about classical liberalism, which is, allows us free speech, you know, all the values of the Age of Enlightenment that we all hold so dear, is being crushed by a pincer movement, and it's coming from the right wing and the left wing. And the danger is that all the purists on the left wing who think they are doing it for all the right reasons are actually being just as destructive of the notion of liberalism and the freedoms that it contains as any neo-fascist on the right wing. Yeah. So we have to be very, very careful. I mean, sometimes I, you know, Subscribe to the Guardian, of course, and but sometimes you think, oh come on, yeah. really, yeah. get off the sanctimonious high horse, live a little. Um, to err is human, to, to forgive is divine, but there's not a lot of that happening at the no, moment. No, no, no. Uh, and yes, I understand where it's coming from. It's coming from all the right motives, but really, when you reach that sort of ideological purity, you do begin to lose nuance, irony. You know all those things that make. Western or any society, any any sort of free society, enjoyable uh, and interesting and stimulating. But this notion that you can crush an idea simply by banning it, or I think, is not the wisest way to do it. Um, now, I assume you don't have any social media accounts. Um, no, I don't. You're not a fan of social media. No, I'm not. I don't think it's a good idea, really. I well, mean, it seems like a great idea, but like all great ideas. I mean, I think there's something positively Orwellian about it. Uh, and I think George Orwell made the mistake. He thought Big Brother would be controlled by the government. It's actually in private hands. Yeah. And that's yeah. even more scary. Yeah. And with the fact that Mark Zuckerberg controls 60% of the voting rights on Facebook, yeah. it's him mm. who has 2.5 billion followers. Uh, and as a mind experiment, it was... So rapidly embraced by everyone, no one even stopped to think. And all the people who would have, you know, been outraged had any government suggested that we surrender so much to them, happily, oh, it's great, you know, I can find old friends from school. Yeah, well, but what are you giving away while you do that? Or Twitter. Why any self-respecting person is on Twitter anymore is beyond me when you see what Donald Trump does, when you see how it's manipulated, when none of it is necessarily true, when it's, it's a genie that has been let out of the bottle, no-one's got any control over it other than to ignore it. But people like crack cocaine just cannot kick the habit. I read a uh, quote of yours um, uh, in an interview. You said, democracy, democracy is not everyone having an opinion every second of the day. That's anarchy. Yeah, well, yeah. I think, I think that yeah. sums it up beautifully. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're going to have parliamentary democracy, you've got to respect the institution that elects a government for three years, and if you don't like them, you get rid of them. I mean, how can you have anyone in a position of leadership with long-term strategies to fight anything these days? Debates are always endless now. It's like Brexit. What a debacle. Yeah, yeah. And no one even really knows what's going on, yet it occupies well, all their vote. time. People weren't informed, and they just went in there and... Yes, but you could argue, I mean, both sides can argue endlessly, but debates never end now because someone can say, well, I don't like that. Mm. And then suddenly you're listening to 40 people who tweeted and created a Twitter storm and you think, well, hang on, how many of those people actually did it? And then when it was retweeted, how many of those were bots? How many of those tweets were generated by a machine in Russia or some guy in Macedonia sitting there trying to get clickbait yeah 
uh, why are we listening to these things? Why is policy being determined by these things? I just find it extraordinary because I think we're going to have to have a slow food movement for the mind. Mm. And I don't mean just watching the garm go to you know, Adelaide to Darwin on SBS for 17 hours. <laughs> I, I think people are going to start thinking about, in the same way that people now think about, well, what are we putting in our bodies, you know, organic food, all that sort of stuff. What are we putting in our heads? And I don't think the answer is very um, nutritious at the moment. So you grew up in Newcastle. Yes. What sort of child were you? Uh, what sort of child you, was I? You went to a boys' school? Did you, did you fit in? Were you a, oh, a no, jock? No. no. Oh, God, no. Jock. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> no, we're, we're in as much as we ran from the bullies, but I suppose we were jocks. Um, Newcastle back then was completely different. I go up there now and, you know, you just don't recognise the place because it was an industrial town. Um, I think there were two cafes in the entire city, maybe three restaurants. Uh, and, you know, we just went to the beach. Um, However, I, I think culturally place. and artistically, it was quite a rich. Oh, I was eventually, city, yeah, because because a lot of people have come out of Newcastle. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I was a kid, right. there was nothing. Um, I joined the cathedral choir, another source of bullying at school. Um, not many kids in Newcastle Boys High were in the cathedral choir. Um, but ironically, it was a selective school. They're supposed to be the nice kids, but. Look, I had a couple of very good teachers who were very inspirational. English, great English teacher, great history teacher. There was no drama or music or anything like that. Right. I mean, I'm not a big believer in fame schools. No. I don't think... I think if you want to be a, you know, for want of a better word, an artist, you should be kicking, kicking against something, not being handed to you on a plate. Um, so there was a lot to kick against in Newcastle, but there was a... Um, a outfit called Young People's Theatre, run by Bill and Betty Ford, who did very traditional sort of, you know, canvas flats and legs, proscenium arch theatre for kids, and, and Bill would write a pantomime. You'd play it for a year. Every Saturday you'd turn up and you'd do, you know, a show in the afternoon, you'd have classes in the morning. Uh, and they taught you everything about the theatre, from stage management to lighting to... We helped build the new theatre. We were, I worked as a builder's labourer for a couple of years because one of the parents uh, taught building at Tech, so he undertook building this entire new theatre. Um, you would do plays eventually, you know, as it got a little bit more modern and we were allowed to do self-devised work, um, angry young teenagers doing, you know, collections of poems and things like that. So it gave me a very good education in... Um, traditional theatre skills, uh, and that was invaluable. So that I did that for a, a greater part of my teenage years. Uh, and then as a young adult, did you move into community theatre? Young adult, I uh, went to uni, right. um, started there, and we, the drama department at that time uh, had been going for a few years, and, and it was the beginning of oh, the Hunter Valley Theatre Company, started oh, up in 1976. I made my first appearance as a horse, in Equus in 1976, joined oh, Actors' Equity. The whole horse, not the front end or the back end. No, we were unique. You were the whole Discreet horse. horses, yes. <laughs> I wasn't the hero horse. I wasn't Nugget. No. Although, quite glad I wasn't Nugget because, you know... Because you had to have a naked boy jump on you. Even years. Mm. Tony Sheldon, as it was. Oh, wow. Um, I was one of the horses that pushed the uh, boxing ring around. Yeah in the sort of, you know, orgiastic frenzy that is the climax of Act One. And we went tights? Uh, brown velour. Excellent. I think of a tight velour flare, a skivvy, <laughs> and then these extremely elaborate metal bloody heads that never really held on to your no, head. No. Always thinking, this is going to fall off in any minute. And then these platform hooves. So we look like, well, you know... The, Hush meets <laughs> Royal Randwick. That's what it looked like. Um, it was 1976. Uh, and then we had to have our eyes packed out, of course. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the play. <laughs> uh, so that was quite good. Anyway, I went to uni and they had a policy of getting a professional director to direct a main stage show for the students each year. First chap in was Arnie Nimi, um, who directed me in The Critic, Sheridan. And he said, oh, look, you know, if you ever consider going into the business, give us a ring. Uh, and then the following year, he came up to be artistic director of the HVTC. So I took leave of absence from my studies and joined them for two years. 
And that was a, another brilliant experience. So, so Hunter Valley Theatre Company really was your training? Yeah, two brand, years of yeah. being in an ensemble. Mm. Um, and we would rehearse during the day and play at night. And we would do a, a new play every four weeks with no down weeks. It was un- I mean, I don't think you could do it... You had to be young and single, really. Um, it was pretty full on. But everything from West Side Story to Man from Muckanuppin, uh, we premiered a new play by a local playwright called Essington Lewis, I Am Work, which had many incarnations. We brought it down to Sydney, it won the Critics Award, took it to Adelaide, brought it back years later as a co-op at Belvoir Street. I mean, that play has been... Uh, but again, you know, we're sitting there, hardly any, you know, not many audience, and David Williamson was in town to see the opening of Gallipoli, I think, which he had written, and he saw this play, and he wrote to the paper the next day saying, I cannot believe that there is an empty seat in this theatre. There are any empty seats. This is... And then from that on, it just took off and it was um, a huge hit. But it needed the imprimatur of... Um, yeah, Mr. Williamson. Someone outside. Mm. Uh, were you the class clown during your, your school years uh, and uni years? A bit of a class clown. Yeah. Is mm. it, where did you develop your skill for mimicry? I was a kid, probably, with the family. Um, and as that beginning, like like doing Monty Python and, and yes, all that sort of stuff. Or just, I used to, have, I think I used to have a, I used to be the court jester or something running around the house. I don't know where that was from, with barbecue tongs. <laughs> Clicking them, I seem to remember that. Um, oh, and at YPT, and just with the, the friend group we had, they were also you know into that sort of comedy and and stuff. Uh, and then that just sort of continued. And I think also when you're a twenty year old or twenty one year old actor, twenty two, and you're having to play a wide variety of roles, way out of your age range, way out of you know what you should be doing, um, you just have to develop those skills. I love that you embrace a sense of the ludicrous. Mm. I, I, I'm not pissing in your pocket, but you're one of the funniest men I've ever seen on a stage. That's very kind of you. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't f- guess from this interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I guess. Um, are you funny in civilian life? Not really, no. no? You obviously have a sense of humour. Oh, I do have a sense of humour. I think I'm funny, <laughs> but those around me, my family think I'm you know, lugubrious, I have no friends, and I whinge all the time. Right. That is my daughter's description and my partner's description of me. Uh, and my sisters, the um, Johnny No Mates, I think is my nickname. No. Oh, pretty much. They're so cruel, right? Yeah, they're very cruel. No, I don't... I, so I you don't enjoy sweat the small company? stuff. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I do whinge a lot about broader issues um, and uh, broader philosophical issues caused me a lot of anxiety, whereas small stuff, I couldn't care less, really. I mean, anything goes as far as I'm concerned. Um, not much annoys me, now, but uh, I'm not overly funny. In I'm, civilian life? Not really, no. But on stage, you know, I've seen you in the Venetian Twins, which is one of oh, the funniest yeah. nights I've had in the theatre, mm. the importance of being earnest, which is just all that oh, classical yeah. witticism, Yin Tong, of course, which mm. required you... Um, mm. Capture Peter Sellers and Travesties, which is quite you know yeah, sophisticated stoppard yeah. writing. And you're adept at all those styles of comedy. Well, that's very kind of you to say so. But Travesties is a fabulous play. In fact, yeah. I saw it on Broadway with recently Tom, Tom Hollander. Hollander, yes, he was great. Yeah. I mean, I love Tom Stoppard, and I, I was very privileged. I got to interview him at the Opera House in one of those sort of you know meet famous people interviews. Yes. Uh, and he was delightful. He actually came and saw the review, which I thought was very kind of him. Um, very nice chap, but su- you know, he never went to university. Super clever. And the great skill about Tom Stoppard is he makes the audience feel smart. Um, and mind you, a lot of people went to travesties and left at the interval thinking that was the end of the show because they just thought, oh, yeah, well. And, and some people couldn't quite follow it. It's very complicated. Well, you have to go in with travesties. You've got to have that knowledge of the importance of being earnest and to and fully appreciate those it. Historical yeah. figures. And yeah, that. if you don't know Tristan Zara or um, James Joyce or Ulysses, but there are whole slabs of it. Now, I mean, I remember once I've taken the kids down to the Dawn Fraser Pool trying to learn my lines, and there are these two paragraphs where he's describing the horrors of the First World War and his experience in the trenches, and then the second one he's instructing his butler, the late Robert Alexander. 
in that production, um, on what clothes to put out. And you're thinking, it's a bit odd, why are these? And we'd already been rehearsing for two weeks, and then I suddenly thought, oh, my God, these are homophonic, is that the right word? Mm. Yep. Reflections of each other. The sounds of both sentences, of both paragraphs, are the same. And he had written a homophonic reflection. Now, no audience is going to pick that up. They might. took us two weeks of looking at it, and it only just clicked. And I thought, God almighty, I mean, talk about smart. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right, to sit down and write something like well, that. Well, to think that... that to do it and then... And, I mean, very difficult for poor old Robert to learn his stuff about the... Um, uh, Russian Revolution, all those repeats where suddenly, you know, someone has a mind shift, you go back and it's altered by one or two words and you have to get the words right. You cannot, there is absolutely no room for paraphrasing. It's got to be spot on word for word. And at the same time, hilarious. Uh, that, that's the sort of comedy I like. It's got ideas in it that actually says something. Um, and that's all I think. You know, we were talking about the death of Stalin. I mean, that's a great... Because it's about something, and it's still very, very funny. You're, you're quite a consummate writer as well, you know, a playwright, and mm, you, some the, would argue otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the the Sydney Wharf Review, which has been running oh, yeah, for twenty yeah. something years, etc. Yeah. Is it easy to write a joke? Um, it is, I think, a discipline that you sort of get into, and you, there are ways and techniques that you can use. Um, it's interesting the difference between prose jokes and sketch jokes and then play jokes and stand-up jokes or direct address jokes if you're just doing one character doing a monologue. I mean, the differences are there. And you certainly learn all the tricks about, you know, make sure you put the, the phrasing right, the economy of the language. Um, I wrote for Fairfax for seven years doing a column in the Good Weekend magazine every fortnight. That's right. 800 words with a deadline. Got to have a deadline. Hopes for that deadline. And that was quite good. And I think... I think I learned a lot from reading um, Clive James when he used to be the TV reviewer for The Observer. Hilarious, um, yet very clever. But the way he wrote prose jokes or, or his book, Unreliable Memoirs, the first volume is still one of the funniest books I've ever read. And I look at it and you think, why is this funny? It's not. But it's just hilarious. And the way... Well, it's relatable. He captures something in our imaginations about a childhood in Australia. Yes, but it's also just the economy of the phrasing and the and the economy of the language. Um, And he continued that into his newspaper writings, and so that was a a useful guide. Uh, And then the sketch writing just sort of develops, and you just sort of get better at it as you go along with experience. You just brevity is everything. Cut to the chase. Um, Let's look at a couple of the products. Um, Orpheus in the Underworld, which is oh, an adaptation. How, yeah, how do you with go Philip, about? Yeah, with, with Philip Scott. Scott. Well, Ignatius Jones was directing a production for OA, and he asked Philip and I to do the libretto. Now that's really hard because, well, we're not native French speakers, uh, and it rhymes in French. But when you do the literal translation, it obviously doesn't rhyme. So we had a literal translation and a couple of adaptations that we could look at. But then you look at the adaptations and you think, well, I can't do any of that because then we're not being original. Um, and then, for example, the end of Act 1 or Act 2, there are 12 different vocal lines, uh, all with an internal rhyme, all singing different things, most of which you can't hear because they're all singing at once. But you have to write it all out. Um, luckily, Philip, Philip has been the best tutor in how to write lyrics and lyric writing is even another thing Mm. Um, and and most people fall down on the fact that their lyrics are not very good and lyrics have to work in a way that the spoken language cannot work or does not work it's got to be a point in someone singing Um, and if you just put lines that could have been spoken into a lyric and make it some sort of feeble rhyming scheme it doesn't work the other one, uh, the Taskmaster, is um, W.S. Gilbert. And I think you can only find two instances in the whole Gilbert and Sullivan canon where the rhymes are they're not being exact. I mean, one, once or twice he does a what they call a, a prose rhyme where you spell words. They look as if they should rhyme, but they don't really. Uh, and one, I think, where the scansion is not right, where the, where the stress is on the wrong syllable. So Philip... 
makes Drew and I if we're ever writing lyrics for the review. And um, this last year we had to write it without him, and we always had this in our minds. You cannot vary the metre, you cannot vary the scansion, no half rhymes uh, and no codding. Because there is something in the human brain that even if you're not fully aware of these things and you don't know, you wouldn't know what scansion was if you fell over it, if you hear it badly done, you register that it's not quite right. And there is something about the mathematics of good lyric writing, and you look at Sondheim, you look at any of those people, um, the guy who wrote Aladdin and... Um, is it Mencken? Mencken, Alan, Alan Mencken. Alan Mencken. Mm. Unbelievable lyric writing. Way better than, I think, than Tim Rice. Tim Rice had some good... You know, obviously had some great shows, but got a bit lazy later on. But those guys, it's extraordinary. You, you listen to um, the great Disney musicals, Mencken and whatever, they are... Ashman. Ash, beautifully written songs, mm. and the lyric writing is fantastic, and they never fudge the metre... They never fudge the scansion. They never fudge the rhymes. And look, and sometimes if you don't completely understand the joke, you'll still find it funny if it scans properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something that tricks you. Mm. You think, well, that all those words fit in exactly the right place. That must be clever. <laughs> uh, the Republic of Myopia. It's an original musical. An original musical. Yes. That. Oh God. Talk about everything that could possibly go wrong in a show went wrong there. Because you were opening the new Sydney Theatre, weren't you? Yeah, we were commissioned to write it, and the idea was that we would have a play by Catherine Thompson, and the same company would do two shows, a play called Harbour by Catherine Thompson, The Republic of Myopia um, by us. Yourself, Phil Scott, and Drew Forsyth. And Drew was in the company, Philip was musical director, I was director, and not very good at that point. Uh, in terms of uh, keeping an even keel in the room, because as Robin Nevin wisely told me, look, 95% of the job is just telling them how fantastic they are. (laughs) (laughs) Never a truer word spoken. Anyway, and we spoke to Catherine Thompson because we were both in the early stages of, you know, formulating these ideas, and we said, we want Peter Carroll. He's going to be these two roles. He's going to have a double as the head of the myopian and and as an old ham actor. Huge role. Oh, yeah, no, that's fine, that's fine. He's only going to be a ghost in mine. Uh, as it turned out, when the play came to fruition, I think Peter Carroll was in every page. He never left the stage in either show. So he was quite exhausted. We had this long sort of rehearsal period. Ross Coleman was choreographing. Unfortunately, his mother died during it and he had to leave. Then we went into a brand-new theatre that there was a fire in the control room. The sprinkler system opened up one night and flooded the entire stage. The computerised flying system wasn't quite working. Uh, so the opening of this theatre, which is um, always fraught, became doubly fraught with two huge shows that were kind of under-resourced, really. Um, Harbour played on the matinee the opening day and then this poor old cast had to come on exhausted and perform this new musical, which, shall we say, fell a little flat. Uh, no thought of their own. By the time the season went on and they found their feet, it fired. Yep. Um, uh, needless to say, it's never been done since. But I think the time might be right to revisit it. We right. Could, you know, rewrite it a bit. Yeah. Um, and, I don't know, Whopper could put it on. Absolutely. We could do it at the Hayes. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Yeah, we should think about that. Anyway, talk to the lads, see if they're interested. Um, And there's been quite a bit of debate about our Australia Day. Oh, yes. And I think you responded to that with a a most magnificent comedy play. Or uh, what were the origins of that? Oh, Australia Australia Day, Day. the play. Was that in response to all the argy-bargy? No, 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 no. That was in response to me being an Australia Day ambassador. Right. And going out into regional New South Wales and um, participating in the events. Look, it's become politically charged now, and um, obviously there are many people who don't think it's a good idea, but equally there are many people who do. And I think changing the date is kind of irrelevant because no matter what day you choose, it will still be a yep. black day in history, Yes, literally, for the Indigenous peoples of this country. And I don't think changing it from the 26th is going to alter one jot no. that fact. Yep. Um, 
yes, there are, you know, actions are significant, words are significant, but I, I still think that those, those who are rightly angry about it, that anger will not be assuaged, I don't think. Uh, so maybe there's another way of looking at it. Um, but the play was written... I was quite taken aback by how much these communities invested in Australia Day and how much it actually meant to them and how seriously they took it. And they were, in fact, far more open to debate and discussion about the whole nature of the day and the notion of what it meant, particularly in the citizenship ceremonies, uh, than people elsewhere. And then than the Australia Day that is currently being debated by the inner-city elites, shall we say, for want of a better word. Uh, so I wrote this play. You've been in it. Yeah. After its production. Yeah. Recently, because uh, it was released for amateur rights and it's been doing, you know, really well. Great. Right. People love it in the regions. But there have been two productions effectively cancelled. Professional or...? Amateur. amateur. One in Griffith, one in Albury, because local Indigenous activists... Oh, no objected to the play without having read it. Merely because of its title, I guess. Because of its title. Yeah. Um, and I was sent a letter that had been sent to the guys at the company in Albury um, by this person who he had neither seen nor read the play. He had done extensive research on reviews. Um, he misinterpreted the play entirely um, the character of Chester, for example... Right. the Vietnamese The Vietnamese, the token, he called it, who was desperate to fit into the paradigm... It's probably more the, Australian than... Well, indeed, the and character. if you'd written the play, you would know that Chester is not desperate to fit into the paradigm. Um, in fact, if anything, Chester is representative of the fact that all people from all corners of the world see the world differently and rub up against each other and bang up against each other it's not always fatal consequences. There's a song in Avenue Q, which I directed years ago, called Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. Never a truer word was spoken in yeah, my mind. Absolutely. Um, and I think everyone has to look deep into themselves and not maybe call it racism, call it prejudice, bigotry. Um, you know, we are defined equally by what we're not than by what we are. Um, we've always been in tribes, always will be. It, it's how you cooperate, get along, and don't ever assume that one tribe is better than another. But that tribal difference will still be there, regardless of um, how equal it is. The melting pot, we don't all turn into, you know, we, we move around the melting pot, but we're still moving in it. Mm. Um, and that's... I think, a better way to move forward rather than, again, trying to ban things. I mean, to my mind, and the company freaked out. They had a, a, a meeting with um, an elder who wanted to change the title and the script, and they said, well, you can't do that. And then she rightly, you know, quite... Uh, says, well, can you change the date? Because they're doing it on Australia Day. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, that's fair enough. Move, move the thing. No, they refused, so gone. Uh, and then it happened again in Griffith. And A, the shock is, you think, well, hang on, I'm being accused of being a racist, which I'm not. No. Read the play. Yeah. B, this automatic assumption, and this is what happens when you have identity politics, that everything has to be framed or about the particular identity that you are pursuing. Now, you can argue that there is a dominant paradigm of, you know, white, middle class, middle age, whatever... OK, well, that, that may be true. That may reflect the dominant paradigm of the demographic. Um, and, yes, of course, it's great to have diverse voices and to have different cultures and different plays and different all sorts of points of view. But not everything can be about your point of view. And when you start to say, well, if it's not about my point of view, it has to be banned, then I think you're reaching into very dangerous territory. And, uh, you know, the words like decadent art start to spring to mind when, you know, there is what is deemed by the powers that be that this is acceptable art, that is unacceptable art. Where have we heard that before? Hmm, I wonder. Yeah. And that's what goes back to that point I was saying about, you know, the, the, what we would consider traditionally the left. They're starting to do exactly the same things 
as we fought, well, not we, but our grandfathers and grandmothers fought to stop freaking Hitler doing. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to, and uh, people have got to start thinking about that a little bit more seriously, I reckon. And you do not solve these problems by banning plays or pressuring people to ban yeah. them plays. That, that's coercion and that's bullying, particularly when you haven't read it. Exactly. That's what Fred Nile does. Yeah. Do you want to be Fred Nile? Okay, well, if you do, fine, but then don't expect me to agree with you. Ignorance. Hmm. So, um, actor, playwright and director, what do you mm. enjoy about that process? Directing. Directing. You don't have to turn up eight times a week and do it. That's the best <laughs> bit. You can leave once it's done. You leave. Yeah. It's great. I mean, there's absolutely... I mean, as a playwright, you surrender your play... I mean, I've seen some pretty, pretty dodgy productions. And you think, oh, God. But there's nothing you can do about it. That's, that's the pact you make. Once you hand it over, you've just got to trust that they'll do a, a, a good job with it, which is not always the case. Um, and as a director, there's only so much you can do too, and then eventually the actors have to do it. Um, but at the same time, as a playwright, when you get actors, you think, wow, that, I've never thought of that or that didn't occur to me to say it that way or it just brings a whole new life and a whole new world to it. I mean, you see different actors approach the same role, bring out different things. That's, that's very exciting. Um, but directing is fun because you don't have to turn up. Do you think... Even better is writing it because you don't have to turn up and you get royalties. <laughs> you just stand it over. <laughs> um, uh, do you think uh, the best directors um, uh, come from the stage, i.e. they have been actors? No, not necessarily because, I mean... Most of the good directors have not been actors. Right. The best director is someone who can get an actor to think they came up with what the director wanted them to do. So it's an intelligent psychologist. Yes, and, and um, they are the ones who make the actor think, gosh, I thought of it all by myself, whereas the director had previously thought of that. And, and there are some people who are extremely skilled at that. Um, is it difficult directing your own work? Uh, well, I mean, it was interesting with Talk, which received scabrous reviews. I mean, boy, talk about a caning. But I think that was largely because it was a play about the demise of traditional media and the rise of social media. And it was a pretty, you know, nasty attack on the bloggers of this world and the, and the people who are sort of starting to inhabit the public discourse uh, and they naturally hated it and someone said well what do you expect of course they're going to turn around and hate it because you're having a go at them they're going to have a go at you um, the public liked it uh, and I think that's always a nice litmus test um, I find particularly with the modern critical voice it's so feeble nowadays and What's increasingly happening is that online critics particularly are motivated by a fairly narrow political ideology that they hold, and if they don't see it being reflected in the play, they don't like it. So they tend to review the shows that they want to see rather than not that they've seen. Um, and I don't think that's very helpful or very useful uh, and it's not traditionally what critics should do, but nothing you can do about it because anyone can ring up and say, I've got a, no offence, a blog <laughs> or, a, or podcast. a podcast. Can I have two free tickets? <laughs> Indeed. Apart from this, this is great. Yeah, this yeah. is really no, good. No, this is I'll pay for my yeah. tickets. No, this yeah, is yeah, good, mate. Yeah. Um, well, you know, as an actor, you always rather play to an audience that is paid. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would... I, they're the only ones you want to play to, really. Mm. Bunch of freebies, forget it. Yeah. Um, uh, the Sydney Theatre Wolf Review mm. is a, an eagerly anticipated event on the calendar of mm. can, can we go right back to the very beginning? Am I right in uh, assuming that all began with three men and a baby grand? Uh, well, it kind of did. Um, I'm Philip and Drew and I met on an ABC political series called The Dingo Principle in 1987 or something. And then we went off and did various things. Philip and a woman called Linda Nagel and I did a show at the Tilbury. Then I did Venetian Twins with Drew. And then there was a bit of gap and Drew said, why don't we, you know, Philip and I, 
you and I would get together and we'll do a show at the Tilbury. So we did Three Men and a Baby Grand. That went very well. Three Men and a Baby Grand 2, went over to Edinburgh, toured around the country, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then we were doing another show, I think, with Linda called Abroad with Two Men. Robin Nevin, who was then artistic director of the, Bris- uh, the Queensland Theatre Company, saw it. She said, I've always wanted to do a review. She became director of the Sydney Theatre Company and she said, let's do a review. However, Wayne Harrison, who was the previous director, had already commissioned us to do a review for 2000, for the Millennium. So it kind of dovetailed quite nicely in those two or ten years that they were the ones who started it, but it was Robin, really. Um, And then she pushed us into being more political. So when we started, there was hardly any politics, and it was just sort of, you know, social, silly fun carrying on from the Three Men and a Baby Grand days. And then it became more and more political, and now it's just exclusively political. But that seems to be what people want. In fact, I'm amazed at the number of people who turn up, and it just keeps growing. And, I mean, our audience is largely ready to knock on the door of God's waiting room, but we are getting younger people along too, which is quite extraordinary. And I think that's the phenomenon that's live performance everywhere is now attracting. It's the only interesting thing left, really because there is just such a plethora. We've hit peak entertainment, peak content. There can be no... But it still keeps getting churned out. Whereas if you go and see something, it's um, a little more unusual. Is it tough to to come up with fresh, topical, engaging material every year? Or the politicians are the the gift that just keeps giving? Ah, look, everyone always says that there's so much material. Yes, there are a lot of things that happen that are you know, the debacle in the Liberal leadership, although that happened two weeks into rehearsals. So were you often difficult. riding on the... On oh, the yes, often, yeah, yeah, yeah. putting yeah. in new stuff? Yeah, as little as possible, because yes. we don't work too hard. <laughs> um, but the issues largely remain the same. Tampa was 2001. We're still talking about Manus Island and Nauru. Um, climate change was first mentioned in the 1950s. So that's the problem. The hardest thing is finding new vehicles for it. You know, we've exhausted every genre. Um, But, you know, they come up. And then you find sometimes, you know, just a straight monologue, it works the best if it's um, the right character. Are you writing throughout the year or is there a Uh, time in the year, in October, where you begin the writing process? I suppose you're making notes through the year. No, we start rehearsals in August, so... Right, Okay. it, It goes forever. Right. Um, we have a meeting next week. Oh, okay. To start basic, you know, basic concept, basic sort of theme for the show, design, that sort of stuff, casting. Because I'm I'm going to take a break from performing it this year. Yep. But you'll direct it. Well, co-direct. We co-direct. co-direct. You we create. Okay, great. Uh, Philip's actually coming back to write it. Oh, lovely. Well, yes, now we're annoyed because now Drew and I thought, hang on, we just we managed to do it, and we only had to split the royalties two ways. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> We've already asked him back. It's too late. Uh, so he'll come back and write. Andrew Warboys is going to musically direct again. Uh, Simon Burke's doing it, and I'm not sure. You know, maybe it's time for, depending on how many women are in cabinet, should Labor win, uh, for two women. Yeah. I mean, we've always been accused of, you know, there's only one token female. Well, A, they're not token. Mm. None of them have ever been token. Yeah. And it'd be a brave person who said to Blasey Best or Amanda Bishop, your token, or Genevieve Lemon. Think of all of them. Valerie Bader. Valerie Bader. Linda. Um, uh, you know, uh, Rebecca. Katrina, all of them. Helen Dallymore. You, they're not token. No. I hate that. But the, the truth of the matter is there just aren't enough female characters in the world of politics. Mm. It's changing slightly. Uh, and then you go and ruin it anyway by Drew being Paul and Hanson. So that's, that's our... Well, again, you know, the, 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 the reviews are, are littered with those iconic impersonations from, mm. from Drew and yourself, you know. Mm. I mean, you do a great Paul Keating, Tony Abbott, Bob Brown, Donald Trump. How do you find your way into those characterisations? Donald or, Trump, or their, yeah. Or their, uh, well, it was interesting because I was thinking, oh, gee, Donald Trump, this doesn't really sound like him. And then I watched a video of it and I thought, oh, it actually does. Shit. And it kind of looks like him too. Um, well, I'm a bit lazy in that regard. I'm not as, as thorough as the others. The others are much more, you know, you watch someone like Amanda, the way she approaches it, it, it it's spot on. And she will work every syllable and everything, watch cow- endless hours of 
um, video and, and listen to it endlessly. Um, Drew is much more um, kind of particular as well, but Donald Trump, I just heard Jimmy Fallon go, Donald Trump. That sounds like him. That's so sometimes him. you're impersonating an impersonator. Yeah. To well, impersonate. it's all tricks. Yeah. It's all a, it's a, an, an illusion. And, and someone suggested that, oh, some awards ceremony, they said, you should come out as Paul Keating and then we'll get the real Paul Keating to come out too. I thought that would be disastrous because mm. as soon as you're next to the real thing, people realise how little you actually do sound like him. Yeah. You don't sound like him. You have a couple of mannerisms, physicality that is the little key, you know, you do that sort of thing and you, and you talk a little bit like that. And, and and that does the job. But if you put it next to him, you go, mm -hmm. so knock that on the head. Yeah. The but audience does a lot of the work for you, I guess. If they you do all the work for you. You just suggest it and they go, oh, my God. The interesting thing about Keating this year was that they responded to the idea of him as much as, it wasn't me, they were wanting him because love him or hate him, and even in Glen Street in the heart of Tony Abbott's electorate, they were desperate for someone like Keating to, or even or Howard, you know, from their camp, to come back and actually do what you said you were going to do. Yes. Uh, and as effective you, leaders, as effective leaders, both those people ruled before social media. Mm. I say that. Yeah, um, I, think, I think you've made your point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which leads us into a lovely segue. You've got a Keating show coming up. Yes, indeed. This year, mm. um, where we will see um, an hour and a half of. Of Keating? Yeah. Well, it's a biography. Right. I thought you don't really get theatrical biographies. I mean... I mean, in the past we've had uh, Tyler Coppen did the Robert Heltman. He did Robert Heltman. That's true. Yeah. And that was great. Yeah. He was very, very good in that. In fact, that's true. But that's... That, can you think of any others? No. Um, so, well, certainly not Australian. I mean, Simon Callow did a Dickens... You know, people have done biographies of Dick, have played Dickens, but it's and, more to do uh, with his Truman writings. Capote, Robert Morse did that, that Broadway uh, yes. play. Um, Will play. Ferrell did a one-man show about George W. Bush, but that was more just sort of comedy. But this is actually a biography, um, and it, it takes its... I've always, I mean, I've always been meaning to do it, and after enough nagging from, you know, lovely people. ones, yep. you um, thought, right, I'll, I'll shut you up, I'll sit down and do it. And it, I quite like the idea of a three-dimensional biography. And so, so it's, it's not quite just comic? No, right. no, and it goes right back. And, and fortunately, it's now taken this... The raison d'etre for doing it is um, the paucity of leadership now and the fact that I will remind you of what political leadership is about. And he was always on about that. And when you look closely at... You know, you look at his prime ministership, the three signature policies of his prime ministership, there was not a vote in it. Native Title Act, the Republic, well, tried to get it going, uh, a uh, APEC, I mean, really, who's going to vote for that? Um, what was the other one? Compulsory superannuation. But, as you said, they were the right things to do. So he, he spent most of his prime ministership just trying to work out what the hell to do about Marbo. Uh, nowadays, they can do that later. I mean, how when they when it was challenged in the High Court, just squibbed it. And he has admittedly recently said he regrets yep. what happened. Um, but it was just put in the too hard basket. But Keating had the, the moral courage to do it. And he knew that they didn't have long... I mean, the reforms of the Keating-Hawke government are extraordinary. Now, some could say that, you know, it's not going so well now but Keating never want to admit, you know, to any fault. And that's actually the difficult thing in this play is trying to get an alternative voice up that, you know, is not just his ego. He would argue that the legacy was squandered, that they put in place uh, the reforms that were needed to get the economy into the world, but then subsequent governments have squandered, you know, the position that they set up. You could probably argue that, and he would certainly argue that, but, you know, other people might think otherwise. But it's so it's about that, yeah, about what leadership is and what you have to do. Have you met the man? Indeed, I have. Right. And does he know about this? Well, he does. I've met him before, and then I had heard that he was uh, very antithetical, is that the right word, to this concept. Um, initially, I'd started it out, it was going to be a show of him planning his own state funeral. Right. 
And I met his sister Anne, and she said, oh, it's a terrible idea, that's really bad, because Paul will refuse a state funeral. He turned down his Order of Australia. He refuses to write an autobiography. He said, let, them, let my policies and my legislative record be my legacy, and he will refuse any state funeral. Oh, so I thought, OK, well, I'll change that. And I heard, heard that he still wasn't too thrilled about it, but then... A friend of his came and saw the review and she said, he's got to see it. As much for the sense of love from the audience for the idea of him. So he came along and he, yeah, he stuck around afterwards and oh, had a chat and he said, oh, go for it, you know, do what you like. I said, it's not about your personal life. He's a very, very private person. Yes. Nor should it be. No. I mean, politicians, and that's creeping in in this country about, you know, their private life is their own affair, really. Um, and I don't. I, I think even even people like Barnaby Joyce, you know, although he chose to do that and he exploited it. But there are other people you think, well, that's your private life. It's got nothing to do with us. Um, and you know, there are various politicians who we all know things about, but that's just accepted. So it's not going to be about Keating's pri- private life, but it goes back to his early days when he was managing dams and the ramrods. Yeah. Yes, um, but. I mean, he's a political animal. He, he left school when he was 15, uh, never went to university. He was the youngest member elected to the parliament in 1969. He was briefly a minister in um, Whitlam uh, Ministry for like three weeks before uh, the dismissal. And then he sat through, you know, all the opposition. Then he, then he had to, you know, see Bill Hayden get rolled by Hawke and then deal with Hawke uh, and then... Eventually, knife hawk um, when he reneged on the curability agreement. But like most biography, the more interesting stuff is the stuff you don't know much about, mm. the early years. Mm. So did he have any occupations other than the music industry before he went into politics? Uh, he, was, he joined the Sydney City Council and worked in the electricity department right. when he was 15. Uh, and then he sort of managed the ramrods part-time. But he got him a, a recording contract with Parlophone and he met Robert Stigwood and there was a genuine chance for them to go overseas and he actually was prepared to abandon the politics because I think he joined the Labor Party when he was 15, went to his first branch meeting and he was in the New South Wales Youth Labor Youth Council. But he was prepared to give all that up and go overseas uh, but the, the band didn't want to do it. They worked for Fairfax and one of them was a public servant and oh, right. they thought, no, we can't do it. So that was that. And then when they decided not to, he thought, oh, what the hell, I'll try for pre-selection. And the rest the is history. history. Yeah. What have you called the show? The Gospel According to Paul. Right. That was a working title, but it stuck. It stuck. <laughs> Couldn't think of a better one. Perfect. And when can we see it in Sydney? It's, it's happening throughout uh, the Well, it happens in Wollongong in late February. Uh, it's at the Opera House on the 13th of May. Um, it's at Glen Street at some point, Parramatta, Penrith, regional Sydney, as we call it. Um, and then hopefully it'll come back and do more. This is a sort of testing the waters tour. It's going to Canberra as well, which is nice. Do you have and much free time? Uh, well, there's a bit of downtime in this tour, unfortunately, right. because there's a few weeks where we couldn't find a venue. Right. Um, so that will be free time. But Well, I've also got to write a cabaret show with Philip, I think. We're doing something. Uh, and then write this year's review, which is just the thought makes you... You know, the hairs on the back of your head go... Oh, something will happen. I know, but it it's just does. torture. Yeah. I, I, it's the most... Writing is a painful pastime. Um, are there periods of great um, blankness? What's the, the, 98% of it is blankness. <laughs> and it's impossible working from home because there's always something far more important to be doing. Mm-hmm. In fact, I wrote a play for a little theatre company in Tasmania. I had to hire an office. I couldn't do it. I had to make myself go there for 9 o'clock and I was not allowed to leave until 4-ish. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only way you can do it. Now, will you listen to this podcast? No. No. I don't know. How, how do you do podcasts? I don't know how I'll, to do I'll it. I'll show you later. I'll show you later. Oh, no, I don't want to listen to myself banging on. I sound terrible on, on the air. Have you had a good time? Yeah, no, it's always enjoyable. I've yeah. nothing better than a soapbox. Oh, Come on. Thank you uh, for giving up your morning this morning. Well, that's all right. But, yeah. you know, people who have listened to me bang on about their subjects ad nauseum will just go, oh, not again. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? 
Do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through Wooshka and Spotify. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers. I'll catch you next time on Stages. Thank you.